welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford and Woking in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. We are so lucky this morning to, uh, oh sorry, you can take your seats. We are so lucky this morning to have our newest addition to our church and our family, Jill Weber, uh, who's coming to speak to us this morning. Uh, Jill and her husband, Kirk, are just up from Canada and come to be part of what God is doing here. But we are so blessed to have Jill this morning come and speak to us. So, uh, Jill, take it away. Thank you. Um, many thanks to Isway who drove very calmly and coolly collectly from Woking to get me here on time. So can we give him a, a whoop whoop? It's all right. Where is he? <laughs> He's good. He drives Lori in London, he says, where there are no rules on the road. So obviously you guys have given me your best driver to make sure I get here on time. Um, I, I'm still sort of adjusting from that transition moment. Can we just pray for a second? Is that all right? Let's, here, here's what. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. I mean, we have been, but let's do it together. Just close your eyes. And with your sanctified imagination, just picture Jesus. Just have a look at him. Jesus, we love you. You're beautiful. We trust you. You are our way. Amen. Thanks, everybody. It's funny, I did that before in Woking, and I did it here, and I kind of fixed my eyes on my imaginary Jesus or how I would imagine him to look like. And he has really kind eyes. Anyway, that was for me, but thanks for your welcome. I'm, I'm going to need your help over the next few months. Uh, as, as has been said, my husband and I have moved from Canada, never thought I would move from Canada, to your fair isle uh, to be here with you. And I'm going to need your help learning names. Um, to be fair, uh, I'm outnumbered, there's one of me, and there's hundreds of you. So what I need you to do is when you meet me and greet me, tell me your name the first 15 times. <laughs> I'm a middle-aged woman, and my brain cells are dying all the time. I feel it. And so that part of my brain that held your name died since I met you last, and so I need your help again. So help me with that, please. Um, and please don't be hurt or offended if I don't remember. I'll try. But uh, Also, I need your help to get me oriented to Guilford. Uh, what, I, what I'm planning, hoping to do over the next few months is to prayer walk the city most days for about an hour. And, and uh, just to get my, my heart here caught up with my body and to get a sense of where God is at work in Guilford. I guess it's a town, isn't it? Sorry, the town of Guilford. And, um, but it would be really great if there's a part of Guilford that you care about or that you're concerned about and you want to come and walk with me for an hour and tell me about it and we could talk to God about it together, I would love that. So contact me however you can. Um, 
Facebook, Instagram, um, old-fashioned email. Uh, anyway, but but please do. I would love to spend time. I've already done it. I uh, already done it once and had the most amazing walk through town. And uh, I'm hoping to do a lot more of that in the next few months. So that's how you can help me. Tell me your name, and take me on little walks. Take Jill out for walkies. That would be good. So. We're finishing up today this series of Living Faith. We've worked our way through this Hebrews 11 and learned from Abel and Enoch and Moses. And then last week we heard from Bill. We learned about Rahab. There's a great cloud of witnesses out there, the scriptures say. And they surround us with their stories, their faith stories. And today we're going to bring the series to land as we fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher, the perfecter of our faith. Uh, last week, my husband and I took a leap of faith. You might say, well, okay, yeah, moving from Canada to the UK is a leap of faith, but actually it was more than that. What's the next screen? We, um, along with 334 other people, we climbed into a massive metal cylinder, in a, weighing a total of 427 tons, and miraculously, it, it got off the ground, up in the air, took off in the sky. It traveled 550 miles an hour for six hours. This is a miracle. <laughs> we put our faith, Kirk and I, we put our faith in the law of aerodynamics. Maybe the next slide. Uh, aerodynamics, it's beyond my training and my expertise. It's beyond my intelligence and beyond my comprehension. It's a mystery. How that, something that big and that heavy gets up and gets across the ocean. We put our faith in the competency of the aerodynamic engineers and the mechanics and the people who, we, we put our faith in the competency of the guy who makes sure there was another ga enough gas put in the plane to get us across. We put our faith in their competency. We put our faith in the competency of the pilots. And in their character, we put our faith in their character. We just assumed that they weren't going to come to work that day stoned or drunk or that they wouldn't try trick flying to see if the Airbus could do a loop-de-loop. -loop. We, we put our faith in their character. And we put our faith in their care. I assumed that the pilots, at the very least, cared about their paycheck and cared about their jobs, and cared about their professional reputations, and, and hopefully cared about the 334 of us passengers and crew. So we put our faith in their competence, in their character, and in their care. That was a leap of faith. It was an act of faith. Um, one thing I did to get ready for England, because I was thinking about moving to England, I thought, what's the most important thing I need? And I thought, and I thought, Wellies, right? I got really good ones. I got like neoprene wellies. They're called bogs. They have handles. So you can, anyway, they're really good. And I got a proper raincoat and like a properly waterproof raincoat. So I thought, I'm ready. I'm ready for England. I'm ready for the rain. Got my wellies. Got my raincoat. I am prepared. I was not prepared, however, for plus 30, whatever, whatever. <laughs> what the heck? Anyway, um, anybody enjoy last week? Some of you, yes. Some of you, no. Um, so what I need to know, because it's going to be warm again this week, who has a, who has a pool? Put up your hand. <laughs> Don't put up your hand, because we will all show up in your backyard. Um, I love pools. I, I love, I have a child. She's grown. She's 25 years old now, so I guess I could still call her a child, right? Can I still call her a child? 
Yes, my baby, my 25-year-old baby. I love taking her to the park and to the pool. So great, kids and water, right? It's the best combination. They're just get all wet and get it all over there and there's no hesitancy and, and, and if you've got a pool, here's on the edge and the kid is on the edge and you're in the water. Anybody ever done this? You're in the water, your kid is on the edge of the pool and they're like, they're nervous. They're sort of dancing on the edge and they're like, and they, they want to come down, they want you to catch them and you're reaching up and, and they're reaching down and they're like, catch me, catch me, can you catch me? And uh, they're, they're a little nervous but they're, they've got faith in you, right? They, they, they have faith in your competence. They're assuming you know how to swim, right? They wouldn't want you to catch them if, if, if you didn't know how to swim, right? They're assuming you know how to catch, right? <laughs> and, uh, oh, the thing I would do with Hannah, too, again, the next picture, once she learned how to jump, I would take it to the next level, and I would catch her, and I'd dunk her under, right? Because you want to teach them how to get water on their face and teach them how to swim. Anybody do that with your kids? So it's, okay, that's good. So, you know, it's, it's just good for them. It teaches them not to be afraid of water. But, but she's got faith in my competence. I can swim. I can catch. She has faith in my character. I'm not going to hold her under, right? She's got faith in my character. I have her best interest in heart. I am actually a nice mom, hopefully, most of the time, with God's help. Anyway, um, and she's got faith in my care. She knows that I love her, she knows that she's safe. And, and she, would, she would kind of dance on the edge and reach down and, and I would reach up and she would like, catch me, catch me. And I would catch her, I'd dunk her underwater and then she'd <gasps> you know, come out breathing and gasping but safe, held in my arms. She had faith. We're gonna read from Hebrews uh, 12 verses one to two. You can look it up on your phone, so long as you don't do Facebook on the off moments. And, uh, but, uh, and I should have had it up here, but I wasn't that organized, so I'll just read it for you. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the, ra- the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus, it says in this passage, he's the author and the perfecter of our faith. What that means is Jesus is writing a faith story in your life right now. He is writing the story. Actually, he's the main character of the story, just in case you thought you were, but that's a whole other sermon. Anyway, Jesus is writing a story, a faith story in your life right now. And it's a story that everybody in your circle of concern is reading. 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul is saying this to the Christians in Corinth. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, Known and read by everyone. You are known and read by everyone. Your bank teller, your grocery clerk, the person sitting beside you on your commute into London. Paul goes on to say, you show that you are a letter from Christ. The result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. You are 
a living letter of faith. God is writing your story. And part of what Pete wanted me to do a little bit today is just share a, a small fraction of, of my story, of our story with you, so that you can get to know us a little bit. We're going to show another picture in a moment. Don't show it yet, though. Anybody have, uh, don't put up your hand. If anybody has a clown phobia, close your eyes. Because I want you to be able to actually look me in the eye and be friends with me in the future. But if you see this, then you have a clown phobia. So close your eyes and next slide. Here we go. This is me. <laughs> I was uh, Crazy Daisy the Clown. This was back in the day I was working for a church in Toronto probably about 20, 25 years ago. I know I look far too young to have worked for church 25 years ago, but I did. And I, I did it part-time. And on the side, I was a clown. I was Crazy Daisy the Clown. Great part-time job. You know how much clowns make? 20 years ago, 100 pounds an hour. Pretty sweet, eh? 20 years ago. So I could just go out there. You get paid to play, right? I go out there, and I'm just goofy and paid to play and got my money in. And then that, that financed all of the ministry I did on all the off hours. It's pretty sweet. I'm like, this is working for me. It's awesome. And plus, I like the floppy hair. And anyway, it was fun. And, uh, but then I got interrupted by God and invited into the prayer movement that I didn't even know was a thing. Here, you guys are part of 24-7 prayer. You know that the prayer movement is a movement. It's a thing. 20 years ago in Canada, we were like, the what movement? We had no idea. But I got invited in. And the Lord invited me. I thought, okay, this is fine. I, I can come and help start a house of prayer in Canada. But I'll clown on the side and make my 100 pounds an hour paid to play. And, and sweet, it'll pay for all the ministry. And the Lord started to speak to me and invite me into a leap of faith. Part of how he spoke to me was through a dream. I'll tell you my dream, and you can give me the interpretation. Is that okay? You ready? Here's the dream. In the dream, I am Crazy Daisy the Clown. I'm making balloon animals, and I'm surrounded by children at, at a camp. And there's a camp director. All of a sudden, the camp director says, you're done now. And all the kids get up, get into canoes. This is a Canadian dream, remember? So they get in canoes and they paddle away. And I'm just kind of standing there, bewildered. And the camp director then takes me to my vehicle. And for those of you who've studied how God speaks through dreams, often a vehicle is a, uh, a symbol of your vehicle of ministry or how God's going to get you somewhere. So I'm walking towards my vehicle. But I get disoriented and I fall to the ground. I'm just lying on the ground, and I see two planes falling out of the sky. I know that they're going to hit me, and I'm going to be obliterated. This is it. This is the end of Crazy Daisy. Everything goes black. And at the end of the dream, all I get is the radio report. The radio report is a satellite containing 24-7 prayer has fallen to the earth. And the only casualty is Crazy Daisy, the clown. That's my dream. Do you have an interpretation for me? <laughs> I mean, there were other ways that the Lord confirmed that particular word to us. But, but we actually took a leap of faith. My husband and I said, okay, if, if we're in, we're in. We're going to be full-time prayer missionaries. This is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to start a house of prayer. Funding, getting funding for house of prayer is really interesting. You, you talk to a donor, and the donor says, you want me to pay you to pray? Imagine how well that goes over. But um, God is so good, you guys. 18 years later, 18 years later, I never missed rent once. Always paid rent. 
Never fasted involuntarily. <laughs> we always had food. Actually, one day, we didn't have enough money for Hannah to have lunch, my daughter, and for me to have lunch. So I'm like, all right, well, this is a ministry of fasting and prayer. Sent Hannah off with lunch, went to work, got to work, and right on my desk, there was a bag full of muffins. I did the happy dance in my office. I'm like, the ravens brought me muffins. I was so excited. I had muffins for lunch. It was so good. Um, but let me tell you, 18 years of being a prayer missionary, the one day I did not have food was the one day somebody left food on my desk in 18 years. Pretty sweet, eh? Took a leap of faith, jumped off the side of the pool, went under the water, and came up again. Fast forward 18 years, I'm going to show you just a couple of pictures of our little house of prayer in Hamilton. So next slide. Greater Ontario House of Prayer. We're not the largest or the most successful house of prayer in Canada. There's about 40 houses of prayer in Canada right now. We are, however, I believe the most stubborn house of prayer in Canada. We are resilient. We are, we're small and feisty. Anyway, this is us. And next slide. Uh, our community has been based in a, in a vulnerable uh, kind of a red light district in our city. I don't have to watch TV. I can sit on my front porch and watch the policemen run up and down the street. So <laughs> pretty great. You save money on cable. But um, <laughs> we have a, a prayer room in the basement of the Social Enterprise Cafe. Get to know lots of our friends and neighbors in the neighborhood. Try to be the loving presence of a people of prayer in a very poor neighborhood. Next slide. We help the church in the city to pray, uh, churches, but churches praying together, setting up prayer rooms and seasons of prayer in the, in the life cycle of the church in our city, training young leaders. Next slide. Um, and then in the summer, we do my favorite thing. Uh, we call it the prayer truck. I'm learning, I'm learning British English, though. You would call it the prayer lorry. And we, we put a prayer room in the back of the U-Haul truck. We park it in like the scuzziest alley in our city and put a sign out front saying need prayer and have, we call them truck buddies, uh, sitting in the, in the truck, seven in the morning until midnight, praying for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of our neighbors. Anyway, so that's a bit of what we do, super fun. Um, it's been great sort of changing the culture and the narrative in our city, particularly amongst millennials, on, on what normal Christian living can look like, calling people in our city into the lifestyles of prayer and mission and justice, and not just the G.I. Joes of prayer. Do you have G.I. Joe here in the U.K.? It does not translate. No? Uh, soldier. You know, he, he was like a Barbie, but he was a guy, you know, in army fatigues. He had, like, karate chop action. Yeah. <laughs> action man. Okay, the action man of prayer. It doesn't translate well, though, because then I think not just the G.I. Joes are action men of prayer, but the, the ordinary Joes, just little old us, regular ordinary people, how to pray, or teach us how to pray. I got lots of stories to tell, and you will hear them over the next three or some odd years, but enough about me today. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, shall we? Jesus lived a faith-filled life, and Jesus died a faith-filled death. And Jesus teaches us, he shows us how to live a faith-filled life, and he shows us how to die a faith-filled death. We'll talk more about that soon. Don't be afraid. You'll be okay. Anyway, we'll start with the life bit. There's so much that I could say about how Jesus modeled a life in relationship and faith with the Father. I could preach all fall and all spring. His life is just full of demonstrations of faith. But I want to just focus on one thing today. 
I think it's one of my favorite passages. It's John 15, 19, and part of 20. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the son, father loves the son and shows him all that he does. Jesus' ministry, all of Jesus' ministry, was paying attention to the father and doing what he saw the father doing. I do only, that's a confrontative word, I do only what I see my father doing. And in a sense, he was living as a child to his father. He's on the edge of the pool. The father's in the pool. <laughs> and he imitates. Children learn by imitation, don't they? Right? First, they, you stick out your tongue at them, and they stick out their tongue at you, and then you smile, and then they smile, and then you drive, and then they drive, and that's a, somehow that, that it, it happens a lot faster than you think it's going to happen. Anyway, but they watch. Your kids are watching you. Right? You know they're watching you, right? Every single thing you're doing. <laughs> and they're watching and they're imitating. Here's the next slide, right? <laughs> the imitation game. We're going to play a game. Can we do that? I know you're in a theater. Normally you don't play games in a theater, but we're going to do it. Because I tried it in Woking and it was really fun. So everybody stand up. This is the part where anybody who fell asleep in the sermon now is awoken. Turn to the person beside you, and then one person makes some kind of gesture, and the other person has to pay attention and imitate. And this is the part where all the introverts decide it's time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so, okay, you could do this. Look at somebody, make a new friend, and just make a gesture. <laughs> and imitate. All right, all right, all right. You're having too much fun? Stop it, stop it now. <laughs> that was fun. Imagine if being a Christian was that much fun. Where all we had to do was pay attention and watch and imitate. What would that be like? Let me read to you from a, a guy named, this is, you know what, it's so humbling when you read quotes in the middle of a sermon, because you read a quote, you think, oh, this is a good quote, and then <laughs> you're talking with people after the sermon, they're like, oh, the most powerful thing about this sermon, the most amazing thing about the sermon was the quote that you read. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I'm being humbled yet again. But here, I got a brilliant quote from a guy named Ernest Boyer, which is going to impact you far more than my teaching, evidently. But um, here's what he says. God is always present to us. And the greatest thing that we can do in life is to teach ourselves to be present to God. The small routine tasks that fill every day spent in the care of others may seem like a barrier to this but it is not. I'll say that again to all the mothers 
These small routine tasks may seem like a barrier to this, but it is not. They may, in fact, be turned into one of the finest spiritual disciplines, a sacrament of the routine through which what appears to others as ordinary and mundane is revealed to be a sacred act. In fact, an act of prayer. Prayer is nothing more than this, being present to God. Being present to God. And so this is a spirituality that makes all of life into prayer. A prayer of love, a prayer of help to others, a prayer of courage. It's a prayer that spans a lifetime and a prayer of great beauty. Jesus paid attention to the Father. He was alive and awake to the presence of the Father. And then he did what he saw the Father doing. That's what faith looked like for him. I want to just go on a quick sidebar for a moment, and I want to explore, because I think it's important, the correlation between faith and the pleasure of heaven, or faith and joy. I actually call it jumping into joy. This word is an uncomfortable one. Is it uncomfortable for British people? Pleasure? I'm learning some Canadians' words don't mean the same things in British words, but Christians in Canada are uncomfortable with that word pleasure. Are we allowed to talk about it in church? Can we use that word in association with God in any way that makes us nervous? <laughs> but the psalmist, he was an unashamed hedonist. He was quite comfortable with pleasure. He unflinchingly stepped into the waterfall. There's the waterfall. Into the pleasure of heaven, and he talked about it. He wrote about it. Psalm 1611 the psalmist says, you have made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And then in Psalm 36, he says, they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights, the pleasure of heaven. Jesus himself experienced the pleasure of heaven. He goes down in the water of baptism, comes up gasping. What happens? There's a voice, right? This is my beloved son on whom my favor rests. Another translation says, in whom I am well pleased. The pleasure of heaven as Jesus goes into and comes out of the water. And he says to us, Jesus says to us, he, he invites us into the pleasure of the Father. He says, do not be afraid, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom pleases the Father to give us the kingdom. It gives him joy. And then Ephesians 1, I encourage you to take Ephesians 1 at home and just look at it with some kind of long and lingering, just look and chew on it and pray through it. The language that Paul uses is so evocative. He's talking about God lavishing stuff on us. He says, according to his good pleasure, God does this. And according to his good pleasure, God does this. There's pleasure in the heart of the Father as he looks down on us. And he wants us to experience that. And it's connected with faith. Being a prayer missionary is super fun. Um, on Monday, I will eat rice and beans. And on Tuesday, I'll be in Vienna. I'm like, how did that happen? <laughs> it's crazy how they'll be just 
crazy provisions, but, but the, the Lord just really challenged me along the way to step into acts of faith and trusting him. I had some meetings in Quebec City. I was in Toronto, which is about a nine-hour train trip to Quebec, and I didn't have any money to go. I was supposed to go, I think it was Wednesday. I was supposed to be there Friday. I'm like, I don't have any money. I know that God wants me to go, but I don't know how I'm going to get there. And, and so 10 in the morning, I had nothing. By 3 in the afternoon, two people had come by my desk, and all of a sudden, I had money for the train ticket, which was awesome, great. However, I did not have money for the hotel or um, the, the registration money or for food. And so I turned to a person on my staff, and I said, well, I got train ticket money. What should I do? And she said, get on the train. And I thought, oh, this is Canada, right? The streets are cold in April. You know, uh, this, it just felt really risky, right, to get on the train. And the scripture came to mind, Hebrews 11 again, and with, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Just in that moment, it popped in my heart, and I thought for a moment, wait a second, what if the inverse is also true? What if faith pleases him? And I pictured heaven. I pictured the Father, and I pictured angels, and here I am standing on the edge of the pool, like jumping into his arms to go to Quebec City with not having enough money to go. And I, think, I feel like the angels are watching, like, is she going to do it? Is she going to do it? Watch. Is she going to? Oh, look, she did it. She did it. Yes, you go, girl. Right? So that's a, that kind of joy that I, that I felt happens. And, and, and I, don't get me wrong. God always joy rejoices over us. He's always got a joyful heart towards you. But I think when we take these steps of faith, when we do something like risky and crazy, whatever it would be, up there, they're going, yes. <laughs> she did it. She trusts us. Anyway. I got on the train with my just train ticket money and nothing else. And, uh, and who should be on the train? I just accidentally bumped into one of my colleagues who was going to the same meetings. And he said, oh, you know what? I've got a car. My friend has a car in Quebec City. Cash in your return ticket, and we'll drive you home. No problem. Then you have a little bit of cash. Not enough for all of the expenses, but a little bit. So I thought, okay, cool. All right, let's do it. And so I did that, and then I walked to the hotel where my meetings were supposed to be, thinking, you know what, if I don't get into the meetings, if I have to fast, I've made heaven smile. And all of a sudden, my desired outcome changed. It wasn't so much about doing this or doing that. I wanted to step into the pleasure of heaven. I wanted to make the Father smile with the faith. I got to the hotel to find out that somebody had anonymously, just happened anonymously, to pay for my hotel room, to pay for my registration, to pay for all of my meals, unbeknownst to me, which left me about a couple hundred dollars in my pocket, which the Lord told me then to give away to somebody else. But, uh, but it, for me, what, I walked away from that situation saying, you know what, it doesn't even matter what the outcome is. I just wanna, I just want the you go girl from heaven. She did it, she jumped off the edge. I think the pleasure of heaven is sparked by our acts of faith. So Jesus teaches us how to live a faith-filled life, a life attentive to the presence of the Father, a life lived in imitation, doing what he saw the Father doing. But Jesus also teaches us how to die 
a faith-filled death. Now, next slide. Well, that's the pleasure of heaven slide. Next one. Here's the toughest leap of faith, I would think, for Jesus. The incarnation is mysterious. There were lots of councils of theologians who debated the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And, and what did that all look like? He's fully God. He's fully man. It's all mashed up together in this person that we call Jesus. But, oh, we, there's lots of mystery around it. We don't understand necessarily how much he was aware of. How, what did he know? What did he not know? How did he, you know, just to be inside his head would have been so interesting. Anyway, we know a few things. We know that he knew he was the Messiah. Right? He understood that he was the Messiah. And being a student of the scripture, he understood what the Messiah was supposed to do for Israel, and he understood that it was going to get worse before it got better. We know this when we, we see the story about the two people on the road to Emmaus as Jesus unpacks the scriptures, telling them about how the Messiah was supposed to suffer. So he knows it. Anybody know something intellectually but still grapple? Anybody? No? Yes? I know it in my head. But the rest of me is not so sure, <laughs> right? So we know that he understood he was the Messiah. He know, but we also know Scripture said he was tempted like us in every way, which means like us, he could be tempted into fear and unbelief. And we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see him struggle. If there's any other way, Father, is there any other way? Do I have to jump off the pool into the deep end and be submerged for three days? It says in Hebrews 5, 7 to 9, all the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. So his struggle in Gethsemane was not a hypothetical struggle. He had to lean into it in looking into the abyss, looking into the deep end. He had to lean into what he knew of the competence of the Father. He knew that God could resurrect because he'd just seen him do it with Lazarus, right? So he knew the competence of the Father. He knew the character of the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. So he understood his Father. And he put his faith in the care of the Father. This is my beloved son. And he took the leap, didn't he? He jumped off. He was submerged. Three days later, <sighs> comes to the surface. There's that gasp of resurrection <laughs> that came. So Jesus teaches us how to die a faith-filled death. He's alive to our struggle and the wrestle. It's real, right? The struggle is real. Anybody not ever struggled in faith? Don't put up your hand. Anyway, <laughs> the struggle is real, the wrestle. And, and then joy comes in here, too. It goes on to say in Hebrews, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. I always have questions. I actually, in, my, in my, my study and meditation on the scripture, always leaves me with more questions than answers. And I actually think it's supposed to be that way. I have questions. What was the joy set before him? Was the joy humankind redeemed, purchased back for God? Probably. Was the joy jazz? 
you? Or Willow, baby Willow? <laughs> me? Did Jesus have me in mind? Probably. Or maybe even, in addition to that, maybe the joy that was set before him is he understood that when he took the leap of faith up there in heaven, the angels are like, is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to, oh, yes, he did it. Yes. <laughs> right? This pleasure of heaven that gets unleashed when Jesus took a big leap of faith. He lived a faith-filled life. He lived a faith-filled death, and he teaches us how to do the same. Um, I just want to come back, maybe our last slide here. Just want to remind you again, he's writing your story. He's writing a very unique individual faith story of your lives. And I want you to know that your story matters. It matters not only to you. Your faith story matters to God. Your faith story matters to all the people around you Every person in your circle of influence that are reading you like a book, your faith story matters. My question to you is, are you living a life worth imitating? I ask myself that pretty much every day. Am I living a life worth imitating? Paul says, imitate me while I imitate Christ. So I'll wind up with this. How is the Father inviting you, each one of you, to live a faith-filled life, to pay attention to his presence, to notice where he's at work, and to imitate him, to do what you see him doing? And how is God inviting you to live a faith-filled death? And I'm not talking crucifixion, but maybe a time of hardship or uncertainty, maybe death of relationships, death of a season of your life as you enter into a, a new one. I actually was up... Part of the joy of being a preacher and also an intercessor is I actually kind of groan you guys through this in the middle of the night before I get here on the platform. I was up for hours in the night. And all that was rolling through my spirit was, it's a new season. It's a new season. It's a new season. That was my prayer over you as individuals and as a congregation last night. When you step into a new season, the old season has to die. I had to leave my baby girl, 25-year-old girl, behind. She did not come with us to England. She's got a husband. She's got a life. That was a death, you guys. Anybody got a kid? It's one thing when they move away, but for you to move away? Anyway, that's the death for me. That's so hard. In the midst of that, as we're invited for a faith-filled death, can we look for the joy that's set before us? the pleasure of heaven, the redemption of those that we love, for Jesus to be revealed to people in our circle of influence as they read us like a book. Maybe there's some of you today who know a little bit about Jesus, and, but there's an invitation in what I've said today for your own leap of faith. Maybe to get on the plane or to jump into the pool to leave your own self-directed and self-focused life behind and to fix your eyes on Jesus and step into a lifestyle of imitation and discipleship. And if that's you and you want to have a conversation with me or Mike and Jazz about that, feel free to come and chat with us after the service. We're glad to 
talk with you about that. And the rest of you, can I pray for you? Is that okay? Can we pray together? All right, let's stand, shall we? Father, we have faith in your competence. You created the heavens and the earth. You are writing our faith story, and you know how to do it. We have faith in your character. We know that you're good, that you are deeply good. Not always safe, but deeply good. And we have faith in your care. We know that you love us. And so, Father, I'm asking that you would open up our eyes, show us where you're at work. Could we, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will, with spiritual wisdom and understanding? Give us spiritual eyes to see our spiritual lives that just seem mundane. And, Lord, help us to walk a walk worthy of you, to imitate. And, Lord, help us to please you in every way, and to bear fruit in every good work, and ultimately to grow in our knowledge of who you are. Lord, you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. So we trust you. We trust ourselves to you today. Amen and amen.